0: Blog Talk Radio. This is Roxanne Meadows, and this is Jack Fresco, and you're listening to V-Radio.
1: Good evening, and welcome back to this edition of V-Radio. It's been a little while, guys. I'm sorry I made a couple of attempts to relaunch the show that just didn't get anywhere, but surprisingly now, with the this virus essentially wiping out everything else that I might have been doing outside of my home... Um, in addition to the fact that I have just been frustrated with the state of things, and, you know, there is a lot of good alternative media out there, but a lot of it is still not really representing the people in the way that I would like. You know, I find myself listening to, say, you know, the Crystal Ball Rising show or the Jimmy Door show and just wanting to be able to yell at them and go, wait, wait, no, not that, this. <laughs> um, and so I decided it was time to to get back into the game. Um, and If you would like to support the show um, on Patreon, I actually provided the link to that here Uh, in the event that I can um, continue to actually get enough support to where it's not draining off of my resources, I will actually be able to purchase a higher level membership, which will allow me to have longer episodes. Um, It is my intention to also rebroadcast everything onto my YouTube channel. The problem is, is I have lost the information on how to log into it and... (laughs) The uh, original webmaster I had for vradio.org has decided he does not support the movement, meaning the movement that we were part of previously, the Zeitgeist Movement, any longer. So I'm going to have to actually find myself another webmaster. Um, Tonight, it's actually my intention to talk about the 2020 election and the COVID-19 epidemic. And my guest is Senator Mike Gravel. Uh, Senator Mike Gravel was a Vietnam-era senator who read the Pentagon Papers into the public record to expose lies about Vietnam. He also filibustered to end the draft, which at this point, a lot of this generation in particular should appreciate that, because if they do try to go to war in some of the regime change wars that Tulsi Gabbard speaks about, you know, it is exactly the young millennial generation that would be recruited unwittingly into such wars. Uh, Mike Gravel was a very good personal friend of mine and a mentor in 2008 during my uh, candidacy for Congress, as well as I was his, um, one of his delegates during his brief time in, with the Libertarian Party. So I want to thank you, Mike, for coming on tonight. Welcome back to V-Radio. Going to activate his mic. (laughs)
0: I'm considerably older than I was then. Uh, In fact, I'll be 90 years old uh, in in May. But uh, I still follow events very closely, and just finished a book uh, and got it to the publisher last August, and it's out there. But we haven't officially launched it yet. I apologize. Part of what you had said was cut off because
1: I'm a little green and I had to remember, rusty rather, and I had to remember to turn it back on. But we did hear about your book and the fact that you were 90. Um, It's good to have you back. Um, Now, I wanted to ask you, first of all, one of the things that kind of spiked my interest and really brought back some memories was that you went ahead and put your name in the lot for the 2020 presidential election. Um, What made you decide to do that?
0: Well, it, uh, I, I really didn't put my name in. It was a, a group of uh, three uh, teenagers, uh, 18 years old. Two of them were at Columbia, and one was at Oxford. Uh, and they approached me, David o- Oakes approached me, asking me to run for president. And I said, David, do you realize how old I am? He says, <laughs> well, that doesn't make any difference. What we're interested in is pushing you to get on the stage like you did in 08 and, and talk about the issues uh, because essentially you were sort of a Bernie Sanders before Bernie Sanders. Uh, And, and I, and, and I wasn't uh, decided to do that. And so he said, well, maybe we could just do an exploratory filing. I said, okay. Then they came back after that and said, well, there's a good response. Uh, we'd like to have you run officially so that you could get into the debates. Well, <laughs> I said, fine. And then, then they, they get back at me and say, well, you're getting a lot of reaction, <clears throat> but we we can't get over the obstacle that you keep saying you don't you don't care to get into the debates or you don't care to, to run for president. And they said, can we file the papers for president? And I said, yes, go ahead. And the, and the criteria is, I will not travel. I'll respond to any interview, uh, but all of the activities have got to be taken care of by you, to the three of you. Well I, actually, it was by four or five at this point. Uh, and what they did is they raised over three hundred thousand dollars. They wow. advertised the uh, the campaign and just used all the money to roll it back into expanding the views that we hold. After the campaign was uh, over, uh, what happened is the Democratic Party did the same thing to me that they did in '08. They turned around and uh, wouldn't grant me the opportunity to be on the stage, even though I qualified. But at this point in time, uh, I, did, I didn't really uh, want to get into a hassle. And so I just let it ride, and they just cut us out of the tribe in that regard but the kids kept on working and of course our tr- our deal was that I would run but at the point when I withdraw I would endorse uh, Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard because I wanted right. to uh, there's two slots president and vice president and my hope was to for Bernie to select Tulsi as his running mate which would have been ideal because their views are identical uh, and uh, and Tulsi is one of the most courageous persons I know, and uh, similarly with Bernie. So that would be a, a natural. And we did. I endorsed both of them, uh, and uh, and of course I continue to respond to interviews. And when Bernie came out here to uh, San Jose, I live in Seaside, California, and he came out to San Jose. And we drove my wife and I drove to San Jose to be at the rally and and then i met privately with him and it was like uh, old folks at home you know hugging each other uh and sure. to my knowledge that was the first time i physically met him uh and uh, and i think he me but uh, he knew me from the 08 uh experience of fighting uh, the same issues that he's fighting for And of course uh, knew me From the Senate experience when I released the Pentagon Papers And did a whole bunch of other things So Ernie, Bernie and I are very Compatible and I hope to Meet with and of course I'm very distressed At this point in time As to what's happening between Bernie And uh, Biden
1: Well yeah I would definitely Be I'm pretty distressed about It too and honestly I think Really, a big part of the frustration that I have is that in many cases, part of it is just that the voters are not educated, particularly about Biden's record. I mean, I know that the first impression that I had was like, oh, boy, Mike wants to get on stage again. I know exactly what he's going to do. You know, and they included that clip of you calling out Biden back when you were calling out Hillary. You know, I think I could even quote it. I've listened to it so many times. You're like, oh, Joe, I'll include you, too. You have a certain arrogance. You want to tell the Iraqi people how to live their lives. I'll tell you why don't we just play Get Out? It's their country. Let's get out. You know um, dang, your you anti-war was excellent.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, you know I had a good teacher, but um, you know that your links to the especially like the old old debates in 2008, and particularly when you called out Hillary uh, on the fact that she was trying to say she was an anti-war candidate, and then she voted for that uh, resolution that would have allowed Bush to attack Iran. And it was hilarious to me. And I, I can't ever really actually prove this, but I had always kind of felt that was a moment, one of the tipping moments where Barack Obama basically tore ahead of Hillary. Not that he was really a superior candidate, in my view, since, you know, I think he was pro-war as well. But uh, regardless, you know, th- those moments in particular, that was in 2008, the the campaigns. that's the other thing that I noticed that changed considerably between then and now is that. You know, in 2008 they got rid of you as fast as they could. They got rid of Dennis Kucinich and you know, one of the things that I remind the Republicans about cuz now they're all acting like, well, that's just the corruption of the DNC and I was like, no, they did the same thing to Ron Paul in 2008. And one of the things I also point out to them is that this wouldn't have been any different. The only reason like they wanted to get rid of Donald Trump as well. He's anti-establishment. I don't approve of him, but still the GOP didn't want him, and the only reason they couldn't get rid of him is because he threatened to run third party, and you and I both know the Libertarian Party would have fallen all over themselves to get him on their ticket, you know, and then in addition to that he had his own money, so he would have, you know, wrecked them if he had done that, you know, but they, they wanted Cruz or one of their other stuff shirt establishment guys, they certainly didn't want him, but now they're stuck with him, um, you know, and you know, overall in general, I you know, I remember thinking to myself how amazing it would have been because you would have you know basically walked up there with a verbal crowbar and and hit Biden over the head. Um, and Bernie, he did get around to kind of doing that now, but he has been trying to play a clean game. And I understand what he's up to. I I think that part of the problem that I'm having right now is that a lot of the people that did support him, uh, like people like Jimmy Dore, for example, are kind of hammering on him you know saying that he wasn't aggressive enough but at the same time there's all these weird uh goings on with the votes like the exit polls are not matching what people are voting and you know you don't want to be a crazy conspiracy nut but we are talking about the party that's on record you know during their uh defense of the lawsuit from the 2016 election saying we're allowed to just pick whoever we want we can pick them in back rooms and unfortunately the judge agreed because The political parties are not constitutional. A lot of people are not even aware of that. They're not part of the Constitution. They weren't intended to be part of the Constitution. It's essentially an extra layer to our democracy that was never intended. And George Washington, in his farewell address, made it very clear that he had very serious reservations, that he was worried about the fact that eventually people would start to worry more about what was good for their party and not what was good for their country. And that's exactly what happened. You know he might as well might as well have been Nostradamus, you know he was absolutely right, you know, and it's frustrating because you know in addition to that you know another element of it that bothers me is that our packages our, our politics are packaged like we're basically told well if you're you either have to be party a or party b you know so for example, despite lift, leaning left i'm pro gun rights, so where do I fit? I can't really be a Democrat because, you know, if you start talking about pro-gun rights, then they immediately assume you're a Republican, you know, but I am pro-welfare. But then you're told, well, if you feel that way, you know, then you can't be, you know, uh, a, a Republican. So it's like, and those two things don't even relate. They're not even involved with one another, but we're forced and essentially pigeonholed into one of these two groups. And um, I I think that at the end of the day, there's a whole lot of people that are just left by the wayside. And I wish we could just do away with the party system altogether and have people run as individuals. Now you did a lot of studying, obviously, in the early days of the drafting and the constitution. And it was actually your book, Citizen Power that really brought to me to the, the, to the fact that the founding fathers were largely plutocrats, that they weren't trying to protect Everybody they were they were trying to protect their wealth, you know, Madison being quoted as the wealth of the nation should rule the nation, you know. And so I wanted to give you a moment, Mike, to talk about this and also how it relates to direct democracy and how the colonies used to govern themselves by direct democracy. And then we got basically convinced that we should accept this delegate system of electing some other rich guy to do all of our thinking. Go ahead.
0: Well, that's the whole thesis of representative government. And, uh, and representative government has been very successful in hanging on to power, because when you look at the, the various nations that have gone from tyrannies to what we call democracies and are not, uh, then you come to the conclusion that well, what's going on? Why? Uh, why do the same people who were in power under the tyranny when they uh, when they were absorbed into representative government they still had control well because the reason why people have copied us and there's only two forms of of what we call democracies ones the parliamentary system in Britain and the other is the constitutional system in the United States and both are designed for the easy transfer of power to the elites who govern society and uh, and so i've railed against that in what you remember as citizen power but more so in the new book that i have uh, out there now and that's uh, the failure of representative government and the solution a legislature of the people is the solution and the book the the failure book is only 120 pages long and it essentially on the back says it's the manual to create and to operate a legislature uh, for the people. Uh, now, <clears throat> with respect to, to we, I rely on the Constitution uh, as a precursor that permits us to do this, to bring this about. Um, the the right now, the representative government has a monopoly on lawmaking. Let me say that again they have the congress has a monopoly on lawmaking why can't the people excuse me why can't the people make laws well because the founding fathers didn't want them to make laws they didn't trust the people they didn't trust them generically but then they didn't trust them uh because of uh, putting slavery into the constitution and so they wanted to protect slavery and the only way you could do that is to keep the people at arm's length from the drafting process in Philadelphia and the ratification process uh, in the subsequent conventions of, uh, with nine states, the standard, if you get the conventions of nine states to ratify this constitution, uh, it becomes the constitution of those nine states. That was illegal in a sense. Uh, because the, Confedera- the Confederation Congress uh, could only be altered, the text could only be altered unanimously, and obviously that wasn't going to happen because uh, Rhode Island didn't even show up at the convention in Philadelphia. But what set the stage was that in Article 9, uh, which of course is the precedent for what we're doing in enacting uh, a legislature of the people, Article 9 says that uh, when the, the conventions of nine states ratify uh, this uh, uh, this legislation or this constitutional amendment, it becomes the law of that state. And so not only nine states, they were followed subsequently by essentially all the states that exist, the 50 that exist in the United States today. And they've all gone through the same process of of ratifying the Constitution, uh, de novo, uh, in a certain process. Now, what we have is we can do the same thing. We can say that uh, the technology exists to literally ask the American people if they wish to be lawmakers, if they wish to set up a legislature of the people. And now that would take a constitutional amendment to do that. And the, the package that we have uh, for the legislature of the people is, is one, a constitutional amendment, which uh, sets up the, uh, the process so that it can't be touched by the, by the Congress or the Supreme Court. And then the other is uh, setting up a Legislative Procedures Act so that, the, so that the making of laws becomes a very deliberative process Otherwise, if you just give people the right to make laws, it becomes anarchy. And that obviously is not an intelligent way to run the boat. So with the process that we have right now, we ask the people if they wish to become lawmakers. Uh, And if they respond, uh, and the standard of the, uh, the immediate response is that Uh, More than 50% of the people who voted in the presidential election, most recent, uh, have to uh, vote in the affirmative for uh, this Constitutional Amendment and this legislative act. And once that happens, it becomes the law of the land. Now, what we would do in the conduct of that election – now, keep in mind, this is an election that will be handled by voluntary private citizens – and uh, the organization will probably call itself Philadelphia too and uh, and these citizens then will conduct an election that would be more transparent more informative than any other election conducted by any government in the world uh and most assuredly the United States and well, so let me now, take a moment to let
1: me take a moment to break this down for our listeners who are not as well versed in this um essentially You know, to what you're listening to is Mike is describing his idea for a constitutional amendment that would allow us to have referendums uh, to pass new laws. Uh, It could also be used to recall politicians. There are actually countries right now, um, I believe Switzerland, for example, if you're going to take the Swiss army to war, there has to actually be a referendum. It has to be approved by referendum. You can't there isn't any one person unless it's an emergency who can simply take them to war. And if for some reason a war in Switzerland fell below the people's approval rating, then they could have another referendum and recall it. Um, So essentially what he's discussing is the idea of bringing federal referendums to be for people to be able to vote on new laws um, and new policies and perhaps even recall people. So we don't end up a scenario like approval rating and then we just have to tolerate him for three years um, because we can't get rid of him. With a you know with this kind of legislation,
0: we could recall him. Now, is
1: all of that still correct? It's been a while since you and I talked about this, Mike.
0: Yeah, yes, it is. But I prefer to use the word uh, a, a legislative proposal uh, rather sure. than referendum. A refer- a referendum is where the government refers something to the people and all they can do is vote yes or no. And so that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you and I, or uh, if you, if we decide we want to introduce legislation uh, to pro- stop a war from happening, uh, or to let's say we want to p- put in legislation to stop the sanctions on uh, on uh, Tehr- Iran, since they've done nothing to warrant the sanctions from our point of view, so we we propose a legislation and submit it uh, to the uh, legislative uh, to the Citizens Trust, which it operates the day-to-day operation, just like the Senate uh, Secretary. Uh, and so they then will assign a, a drafting uh, professional drafter to look at our proposal. And if, uh, if it comports, it's constitutional and it's proper, uh, then we have a qualified uh, proposal, a legislative proposal, which is then uh, submitted. We have to pay for a, a poll. And polls can be very accurate. And the poll polling firm would have to be approved by the Electoral Trust, uh, Citizens Trust. Uh, and then we conduct a poll. And if 40% of the people uh, who are polled... Uh, are prepared to uh, say that yeah, we would like to uh, we'd like to v- uh, vote or listen to the case for this proposal. So, forty percent. So you get rid of all the garbage uh, that would be thrown at these kind of things by by the fact that you have a poll to see if people are interested in the subject. Then after that, it's qualified. The uh, trust opens up a website. Uh, for that specific piece of legislation. That, that legislation then is submitted to a hearing with a, a hearing officer from the trust, uh, from the hearing to a deliberative committee, uh, which acts like a subcommittee in the Congress. The deliberative committee can bring in experts uh, and and can make changes as long as they don't uh, change the, the uh, vision of the proposed legislation. Then the legislation goes to the uh, uh, is then transferred uh, to a scheduling of the vote on the legislation. At the same time, it is submitted to the legislative body relative to the jurisdiction. It could be a federal legislation to the Congress, or state legislation, or local legislation. And in each case, the, the, the uh, political representatives in those instances would have a chance to vote in an advisory capacity, not in a binding capacity. And then after it goes there to the scheduling of the election. Now, keep in mind, everything that's gone on has been reported on the website of this legislation so people are really have an opportunity to be totally informed as to what's involved now so basically any new laws
1: that would be proposed we would have an opportunity to review them and be very aware of what it is
0: oh that we're voting beyond that beyond that because there's nothing like that in our present situation Uh, but then once once the voting starts you vote for a week 724 so you can be anywhere in the world and through the uh, the technology that we would put in place, you'd be able to vote for a federal law, for a state law, and a local law. And Now, what that does is it means that you'll be limited to 52 uh, federal uh, legislations uh, in a year, 52 state and 52 local. So here again, you have an orderly process, to inform the people to permit them to express their views by voting in a very deliberative fashion, not, not hurly burly. And so after that is, uh, it's been voted in the affirmative, then it becomes the law of the land and, and it would supersede anything that Congress legislates. Uh, and, and of course the, the process could not be invaded upon by the Supreme court, uh, unless there's a fraud going on. So, you can begin to see that we set up the process with a constitutional amendment that's got six sections, uh, and, and and let me just cover the sections because you you'll get a feel for it. The reason why we use a constitutional amendment because the the subject is is of a constitutional nature, but more so because we want to make sure. That the people really understand what's going on and it can't be screwed around with, so the first right. section is to go ahead and have uh, uh, the assertion of the power of the people to make laws self evident it's our we we had that power at birth the The next thing is you you now have a section that says and when we vote for the constitution amendment, we're voting for the process that permitted the election uh, of this to take place because if we don't have guaranteed the the legitimacy of that election then obviously it it won't happen uh, so th- because you wouldn't be able to vote on it if it weren't for the legis- for the Philadelphia 2 organization putting this in front of you in the electoral process that's the second title the third uh, section is setting up a a citizen's trust that will then do the housekeeping duties of the uh, of these legislature of the people, just like what we have in Congress. And then in addition to that, you have a director. And, uh, and of course, they, they have a board of trustees, and they're initially appointed, but then first opportunity, they are elected, and they're uh, term-limited. Uh, and, and, of course, we get with, that would set up that we'd get some really qualified people because it's not an, uh, an exercise of power the way we see it today. It's a legislative process that guarantees the, 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 that, that the people are informed. The next uh, item is, of course, well, where are we going to get the money to do all this? Well, it's real simple. What we say, and this is in a constitutional amendment, we're saying that whatever monies are, are given to the Congress for its operation annually, we give the same amount of money to the legislature of the people for its operations. Now, it would take probably a year to get things in, because the first thing that they do is they've got to uh, guarantee that everybody is registered for life. None of this stuff of now, these elections will be conducted by the Electoral Trust. Uh, the citizens trust, uh, and 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 that would be conducted at the state level, local level, and federal level, and so all this this one organization conducts all of these elections uh, in a universal fashion. So the, and then, of course, I add another uh, section in there that says that only a natural person can participate uh, in this process. So no corporations. Yeah. That's right. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> right. And, and and it wipes all that stuff clean uh, from the beginning. Now, what the reason uh, that this uh, now when the, the this is a constitutional amendment, so the, the Supreme Court, the Congress can't can't touch it. It's a constitutional amendment, and when it's enacted into law, all the Supreme Supreme Court can do is is to interpret the words. That we've put into this constitutional amendment. And so those right. words will be very clear, very articulate. And so that's the process. Now, after we have the passage of the, then we need to set up uh, an electoral uh, process in our legislature. So we have the legislature of the people, and so we have uh, all of the details that, that they need to operate a, a legislature. And they're all laid out in this Legislative Procedures Act. So here we sanction it with the constitutional amendment. We set up the procedures so it's a deliberative process, uh, and then uh, we now open it to the public. Uh, we go through the process of getting the, uh, the legislation. You and I had this legislation. We we get it through the process. It then becomes the law of the land. That's what this <laughs> what this man, this book the failure of representative government because i set up the failure so that we can show why it's a failure and then well, I yeah i agree to-
1: wholeheartedly on that and i think to try to bring this around to where people will understand why why this is relevant you, you end up in a scenario where we have this frustration that for example we can't pass medicare for all uh you know we can't pass maternity leave etc a lot of the different things that bernie wants to pass You know, the the progressive wing of the Democratic Party just can't ever seem to get, you know, can't get anything done. And that's what I remember you pointing out to me back in your day was that essentially in order to get anything done as a maverick in the in the Senate, you more or less just had to find ways around them, like whether it was the filibuster or reading the Pentagon Papers, you know, that this would empower people to be able to make their own legislation Um, And what you're explaining is the system in question that basically makes sure that, you know, we don't just pass laws that are not necessarily good laws.
0: Well, that's right. And and of course, this is open uh, to anybody who can get 40 percent of the people in this poll that that want to consider the legislation. That's very critical because what happens in the Congress, you know, anybody can introduce anything and they do. Uh, and then it's up to the leadership uh, that then determines who will have their legislation considered. Now, when you've got a crazy like Mitch McConnell in there, you can't get any intelligent legislation as long as he's in power. And the Democrats, right. uh, you know, the, many times they don't do much better in, in their approach. So the party system, in fact, you, you alluded to the party system Uh, Even before the revolution, it was generally accepted knowledge that parties were factions and were very bad things. And so what had happened, this was the conventional wisdom of the time. And then lo and behold, George Washington gets elected president unanimously. And then in the first year of his term... You have the fight breaking out between Thomas Jefferson uh, and uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton. And then that fight separated into factions. And we've been living with factions ever since. And you're quite right when you stated that there's no activity, political activity, that can take place basically within the two parties uh, without without the understanding that – if you, if you want to appoint a judge, he's it, it, got to comport to the faction. You want to appoint uh, officials, they got to comport to the faction that they're aligned with. And there's not a mention of that in the Constitution. And it's the most corrupting influence because the factions are only interested in, in acquiring and, uh, power, just to have the power. Whether they use it for any beneficial purpose remains to be seen. They just want the power, and that 's what we see today in the election that uh, with respect to what 's happening to bernie uh, the, the and understand that it 's not just the Democratic Party right now it 's that the American public has been so misinformed about bernie 's agenda that the, that they don 't recognize. That by voting for Biden, they're voting against their own self-interest. It's going to happen, and and this is because the the, the power of our capitalist society, uh, in, in, interlaced with our political power, is is so frightened of the changes that Bernie will make. And I can tell you that uh, once we enact the citizens, uh, the legislature of the people. Bernie's agenda will go through it easily, easily, and that and that will really make the changes that we that we need, because the Congress will never do it, and and, and so I've recognized that and I think Bernie and I are gonna have a conversation after the convention as to how we go forward because we need him and his organization. He kept his organization alive from 16 to the present. Now he's gotta keep it alive, and one of the ways he can keep it alive is functioning as the major force. Uh, My kids are doing the same thing as a major force to bring about this enactment of this manual to create and to operate a legislature of the people. That's the goal. And so we need to first educate the American people as to why it's efficacious for them to be lawmakers and why we have to stop the monopoly that exists uh, in Congress in making laws representatives. And so once we can accomplish that, then then we start the electoral process to go out there and now this is going to be an expensive operation make no mistake about it it's the equivalent of a presidential election but the, but that's what it takes when you're when you're trying to repair the damage that was done by the founders uh, in the constitution to repair that damage it takes a fundamental lift by the people to understand what they're doing and to enact it
1: let me take a moment to speak to the viewers. Um, we did have one caller, but I, I wasn't actually prepared just to bring anybody on blindly that I didn't know. Um, if you have any questions for me or for our guests, please uh, engage in the chat room. You should be able to do that right there on Blog Talk Radio. I think you'll have to make a free account like it doesn't cost anything, but then you can participate in the chat room and you can ask me and Mike questions um, in real time. Um, also, so Mike, uh, to talk a little bit about what's going on right now, um, as we've we've already discussed some of the problems with the election system as it's going, we, we've discussed issues about, you know, just how, you know, Bernie's policies, essentially, that the establishment is terrified of such a, you know, of such an idea. And I think that honestly, we're kind of to a point where it almost seems like they'd rather lose to Trump again um, than allow the progressives to get a foothold in the Democratic Party. Um, and would you say that's true?
0: No, I, I wouldn't entirely agree with that. There may be elements of that, but uh, no, they're, they're they're frightened of Trump, uh, the the establishment, uh, whether it's the uh, capitalist establishment or the you know they're, they're they've enjoyed the tax breaks that uh, Trump has given him, given them, but that's all going by the boards. What's happening with the uh, virus is so overwhelming to human society on a global basis that it is, is shook everything uh, to the bottom. What Trump is going to be looking at as he runs for re-election is going to be uh, a a, uh, a a stock market that's in, in, in the toilet. He's going to be looking at uh, the, uh, the the approach that he's taking, which is ridiculous. You know, he thought that this virus was a hoax, uh, and all of his statements will will it'll be easy to just do spot after spot, video, radio, quoting Trump and his stupidity. And so he may have his bra- base intact, but what the virus has done has pushed this far beyond any partisanship. Uh, and and so that's the reason why the establishment, the Democrats, and the broader establishment, is so frightened, so frightened by uh, Trump, uh, in whether he's handling the virus or, or handling the economy, uh, with all these trade tariffs and so on. You know, he's turned the clock back to the early 30s. Uh, and so we've got to uh, solve the problem with tariffs uh, with the, which are essentially spoon Holly tariffs we've got to solve the problem uh, with uh, Glass-Steagall so we can separate the banks actually we have to correct the banks we, we have to really take over the Federal Reserve which of course is owned and operated by the bankers and uh, I'm very fond of Ellen Brown's concept of, uh, of public banking And we got that passed in California, and I think that has to be worldwide, nationwide, certainly. And that's one of the things we could enact into law if the people were able to make the laws and not just rely upon the... And and just as an aside, what will happen to representative government, it will be grossly improved because the people will essentially fall into the traces of setting policy and the implementation of policy will be done by representative government. And uh, and if they don't implement it properly, the people can turn around and correct it and pass it again. Now, what you have to understand, when you empower the people to make laws, they are the sovereigns. They The creation of the sovereign is the Supreme Court, the executive, and the Congress. And they are superior to all of those departments and so the people as lawmakers are independent of representative government and that's the flaw with the initiative process coming out of switzerland is that they they t- turned around and uh, and left the politicians the elected representatives in charge of the process which weakens it and so when when the initiative process was was uh, copied in the united states in the various initiative states the, the process is corrupted because it's still in the hands of representatives, and the representatives do everything in their power to sabotage any possibility that the people could make laws as they do. They're protecting power. It's, it's really all about power. And so now when you give the people the power to make laws, it is immutable. There's, it will change everything. Fundamentally, now you could say, "Well, what if what if Congress passes something, and, and and the people are against it, and they change it, and then Congress passes it again?" Well, very simply, the people could wipe out Congress. Let me repeat: the people become the superior power in human governance because it is made up of human beings governing themselves in a legislative process. This, this is the only arena where you can bring the people into the operation of government. You can't bring the people, the millions of people, uh, into the judiciary. They uh, can't bring them into the, uh, uh, into the Congress. Uh, and, and you can't bring them into other facets of government. But the legislature is open-ended. You can have a legislature with millions of people voting. Once the process is set up, it will go around the world like wildfire. Uh, because, and, and, of course, because it's important that the total package be there, because you don't want anarchy. You don't want violence. You want an evolutionary process to make the law. And so why we have violence now in protest is because the representative government is failure, is failing. There's there's no two ways about it. Just read that one chapter, and I don't go – hell, you could write volumes on the failure of representative government. I just touch on uh, a few items to make the point very clearly that the United States, uh, Britain, France, and the Netherlands, the Dutch at the time – these were all representative governments uh, that uh, that ran the government, and they committed crimes uh, ad nauseum, uh, including the United States, overwhelmingly. Uh, and and so I treat that in there and then set the stage to now analyze the Constitution for you and then from that analysis show you how we can enact this legislature of the people uh, Uh, in this process, and then after that, uh, I have a little chapter there that shows you all the issues that you could then enact into law if the people had the opportunity to do that. And these issues here, we need to have term limits uh, for members of Congress. Uh, For the House, we change it from two years to four years and three terms, 12 years. From the Senate, there's a term limit, two terms, you're out. All federal judges, including the Supreme Court of the United States, would be term limited to 12 years. Can you begin to see how that would change the operation of our society when uh, that is is put in place? And that's just the beginning of the things that need to – I have a whole list of the things. And then at the end, I have uh, a chapter on the 21st century, and, uh, and I'll tell you – I, I deal with Russia, China, uh, and, and the problems that we will have with uh, the uh, with atomic energy. Uh, we'll, we'll destroy the planet through two ways: one with atomic energy, or with uh, the environment that we're despoiling.
1: Dispo- and that
0: will happen by the end of this century. So. The, this is the the only opportunity we have it's not going to be done by representative government we see that it's got to be done by the people and the people will do it if they have the tools to do it and that's what this is all about and this book is the manual to to develop and to operate a legislature of the people and i don't use i used to i used to use initiative but initiative lawmaking is not all that understood. People understand a legislative proposal, and that's why I've changed the rhetoric to try and make it more user-friendly Than it than, because I've been at this for 25, 30 years. So right. this, what's happened in this text I put forward, uh, it didn't jump on the table. It, uh, it, it took a great deal of re- reflection, research, and analysis of the founding of our country and how a legislature works. It's uh, because, and I have the fortune of having been in the legislature, having been in command of the legislature in Alaska. Uh, and so that, so if you read the book, to put it down. It's you can read it one setting. Put it down, then wait a month and read it again, and you'll see more in it. The nuances in this thing are extraordinary, and there was no compromise. See, what happens a lot of times in legislation, you compromise it and thereby neutering the effect of the legislation. This did not happen. This was written over a period of 25, 30 years, vetted by speaking around the country to law schools and vetted with uh, colleagues and friends of mine who served on a board of Direct Democracy uh, and and most of them are my age and have on, gone to the greater rewards. But thank God <laughs> for my longevity because we can – here, when I wrote the book, I started last year, last October, uh, which was uh, 89 years old. And I finished it in August. Uh, I was just so grateful to finish it and get it off the publishers because uh, – uh, th- this is probably the last thing that I could do with any coherence. Now, I can talk about it and and will uh, once we get on a campaign trailer, because this is a campaign. The campaign is to enact this, to de- take this book, put it in front of the American people, let them understand it, and then let them vote on creating a legislature of the people. That's the task that's involved, which means that we've got to sell the book overwhelmingly, and then use the proceeds to advertise the book to get more sales and more understanding. We need the American people to understand this before we start an election. And and that's what the task is at hand. And if Bernie, if I can persuade Bernie and Tulsi and Tom Steyer, who has really articulated some very uh, language, now whether that, he has the depth behind the language remains to be seen and that's what the book is about you can say oh i'm for the people yeah well tell me how what the people are going to do and how they're going to do it that's of course is exactly what's happening what i put forth in this book when people say oh i'm for the people well tell me how the people are going to do it now
1: that's definitely, uh, you know, it's appealing to me, and I think that one of the things that I've always had to deal with in the past, especially when arguing with libertarians... I'm having this. a little trouble hearing you. Can you speak up? Can you can you hear me now? Are yeah. you yeah. hearing me okay? Yeah, yeah. All right, good. What I was going to say is um, one of the problems I've always had when I was trying to explain why democracy was superior to just, you know, representative government um, was the fact that essentially... Um, our representatives essentially only represent their donors um, in the long run. They have to, like, that's just the way the system is designed. They're, they're in a situation where they have to represent whatever corporate interests are willing to pay them. Um, Bernie has been able to accomplish something pretty unique in that he's managed to have this strong campaign that he's had um, mostly just with small dollar donations. Um, it's has awesome. been it's an, awesome. A, yeah, it's done. awesome. Um, Tulsi, it, I think Tulsi, at the end of the day, what's really happening is just especially, you know, because you ran into the same thing that uh, Kucinich ran into it is that and Ron Paul ran into it. They don't like anti-war candidates at all. Like the, the military industrial complex power over the electorate. It's just ridiculous. And I think it, that's largely why they've, they've went after her really hard. Um, and I, I think that one of the other things that distresses me about how things are going is that so many of these progressive candidates followers Are turning on each other like so Tulsi supporters who don't like Bernie supporters and Yang supporters who don't like either of them and and they won't work together Um, meanwhile on the centrist establishment side of things well we've seen that they'll certainly work together because they all dropped out and they all endorsed Biden including the ones like Kamala Harris and Cory Booker who said he was racist a segregationist You know, they they had all of these compelling things to say about him when everything started, and now all of a sudden they've forgotten all that because they have to fall in line and do whatever the DNC wants. And it's it's unfortunate to me that the progressive side of things, I think some of them are just so emotionally attached to their candidate that they almost resent other candidates. Like, I, I get into arguments with Tulsi Gabbard supporters all the time because they feel that Bernie Sanders should have done more to try to get Tulsi into the debates or something like that. And I, I don't think they grasp that aside from the fact that there isn't really much Bernie could do like the, the media doesn't like him either. It's not like they would go, "Uh Oh, Bernie's mad at us. We should put Tulsi in the debates, but there's also the issue of um, dividing up the delegates that we have. I mean, Elizabeth Warren essentially seemed to be just siphoning votes off of Bernie's support base And that seemed to be like her whole involvement in the election, which is unfortunate. But, you know, and you still see it as you look at the different caucuses and the different um, primaries that have gone on, as you look at the amount that she has. And surprisingly, her delegate count is just enough to keep Bernie from, you know, being neck and neck with Biden. Um, I mean, the last primaries that we've had were just really uneven. So I don't know. But, you know, um, it's not really in uh, Bernie's. best interest, it's not even in Tulsi's best interest, it's not in Yang's best interest And in at the end of the day that he divides the vote further and then none of them get in because that that's essentially what I would fear would happen um, I like all three of them, I think, I wish that all three of them could be in the administration, you know, together one way or the other, and I agree with your initial statement that Bernie and, and Tulsi paired together would have been an excellent group, especially be considering that Tulsi seems to be running for the general election. And the reason I say that is that I have so many conservative friends that have said they would vote for her. I have a lot of libertarian friends that said they would vote for her. Ron Paul endorsed her. Gary Johnson, former, you know, governor, you know, Republican governor and then libertarian candidate endorsed Tulsi Gabbard. She brings all these people to the table that none of the progressives would have ever brought. And I think it would have been such a powerful ticket, especially since she's already said openly on Joe Rogan that um, Bernie was one of the only candidates that she would VP for, um, you know, and it's, it would have been a powerful ticket. And I think that what I'm concerned about and um, you know, is that I don't they may be voting for Biden under the concept of being electable. But what I'm worried about is that Trump's entire game in politics is making fun of people and Biden is just going to make that so easy um you know that that's what concerns me is that i don't you know as far as like what goes forward it you know i from my perspective anyway it doesn't seem strategically sound to put Biden at the head of the ticket there are other people even on the corporate side that could have done better
0: um what what is your insight about that well first off i agree with your analysis but i don't agree with your con- conclusion and that is that that uh, Biden uh, is the choice of the Democratic Party, but not just the Democratic Party. It's broader than that. Uh, Let me give you an example. In Massachusetts, uh, Biden did not have an office, did not have any position at all, did not spend a penny, and he carried Massachusetts, a liberal state, overwhelmingly. And uh, and to the detriment of Bernie and to, uh, obviously, uh, the Warren. Uh, now, how did that happen? Uh, and that's the analysis that I've placed on what's going on in areas where Bernie carried in 16. Now, the tragedy is that Bernie was cheated out of the nomination in 16 by Hillary Perez, uh, Wasserman Schultz, and none other than Barack Obama. Uh, and so, and then we paid a price for that. That's what brought in uh, Trump. Now, I I don't have the same fear of Trump that uh, that others have. I think Trump is going to beat himself. He's he's in a, been in the process over the last three years of beating himself. So he's he's strengthened his base. But boy, I'll tell you, his base when they get hungry, uh, they're going to go for their <laughs> pocketbook, and that's not going to be Trump. So. Uh, so, the, but the, but what what I view what happened with with Bernie uh, is that what happened initially with Tulsi, and that is the military-industrial complex, which essentially has treated all our politicians, elected officials, as puppets for the last thirty forty years, uh, and and so the. The, the, the person that frightened the military-industrial complex more than anybody else was Tulsi Gabbard. She had six years on Armed Services Committee. She knew where the bodies are buried. She had six years on Foreign Relations Committee. She knew the foreign policy areas. These, now, Bernie has caught up on that, but Tulsi would make a tremendous contribution in that regard. So they had to annihilate Tulsi early on and they did they did successfully and of course mainstream media which is which is the tool of the the powers that be the 1% elites who control our society they control the the uh, mainstream media there was not one question that addressed the 800 pound gorilla at the debate and that was the the actual robbery of the Treasury by the military-industrial complex. Not one question about war and peace uh, and, and how we sustain war. So that's what we're facing. And, and so I, early on, you know, I got int- interested, but I, I came to the conclusion uh, many years ago that representative government doesn't work, and it won't work, until we make, the, the create, solve the problem that was created by the founding and the framers of the Constitution, in order to protect slavery. That's the reason why the people they didn't trust the people, but but they made one very great mistake from their point of view. When they put out the Constitution, they said, "We the people do ordain." Well, that's right, but we didn't ordain it in. In 1776, 8, and 87, 88, 89. No, it was done by a minority of elites, but they made the mistake of selling it to the American people by saying, We the people do ordain. Well, if you do ordain, it means you're godlike. And so if we ordain the Constitution, we can change the Constitution. And that's right there in the first lines of the Constitution. What happened in the Constitution, it did not keep faith with the Declaration of Independence, where we declared that all people are created equal. So we established a, a moral norm, and the first thing we did as a collective is violated when we wrote the Constitution.
1: That's definitely that's a part of this that I think a lot of people don't grasp. And that, that comes back to what we were mentioning earlier, that people don't understand what was really going on when the Constitution was being formed or was being written and who wrote it and why they wrote it. And um, one of the backdrafts for that, actually, I was watching uh, war I don't know if you've ever watched that movie. Um, it's a really good movie about propaganda. But one of the things that they that they brought up in Psy War was that uh, there was a period right after we won the Revolutionary War where there were a whole lot of soldiers who never got paid. And they were pretty angry and they were angry in particular at the wealthy of the country. And there were riots. There were all kinds of other problems that were going on at the time where massive amounts of the poor were like, hey, you know, you guys you know, didn't take care of us. We just won this revolution for you. And now you're all still sitting here. You know, fat cats with all kinds of money and the rest of us are struggling because we went and fought a war for the all these years. And, you know, we weren't, you know, planting crops or doing any of the things that people did to make money back then. Um, and that was the real reason why they were so scared of the poor and also scared of democracy. One of the things I remember from your book, Citizen Power, was just pointing out that, like we brought up slavery earlier, was that that there were there were states that would not ratify the Constitution by direct de- democratic um, election because it had slavery in it. And then there were states that wouldn't ratify it unless it had slavery in it. And so the wealthy interests obviously wanted to keep their slaves. I mean, even Thomas Jefferson who's probably my favorite of the founding fathers. You know, he owned more slaves than the rest of them, you know, and so, and he lived high on the hog
0: on their backs.
1: Right, exactly. And that's, that's a part of it that I bring up. Like I, like we were talking off the air before we got on, I was like, you know, people bring up all the time, particularly the founding fathers, like they enshrine them and they say, you know, oh, well, you know, the founding fathers beliefs on property rights. I'm like, hey, let's let's stop that right there, because those people believe that people could be property, you know, and I'm not saying that there can't be something good to come out of what they did. Like I said, you know, there's things that Thomas Jefferson said that I, you know, that I like that I found compelling. But we have to remember who these people were. You know, they they weren't trying to protect the common man. They weren't trying to protect you know, the poor. They weren't trying to protect the working class. They were trying to ensure that the people who are wealthy stayed in charge, which is why they liked the idea of let's elect delegates to go to the Constitutional convention. Let's lock the doors so that nobody can see what we're doing. You know, if you did that now, like if like we turned off c-span and the Senate went into, you know, to session, you know, in closed session and nobody was allowed to see what was going on, you know, nobody would stand for that, but that's the circumstances in which the constitution was drafted. And most people are not aware of it because they don't talk about that in the history books, you know, it's not to their best interest, but you researching essentially the possibility of a constitutional amendment, you know, you had to go look back at all that stuff. And that, and that's not actually that far off. People tend to forget, like if you just sit and listen to the way that the, uh, Supreme Court has the debate with itself about, well, what did they mean? Like, for example, when they were doing the, the D.C. gun ban, they had to sit there and read letters between the founding fathers talking to each other about the Second Amendment to try to determine whether or not banning guns in D.C. was constitutional. That's how they always do things, because that's essentially what you're supposed to be figuring out when you're framing the Constitution is, well, what were they thinking at the time? You know, and I think that people essentially have been, you know, I, I, essentially brainwashed, so to speak, That's unpatriotic to say anything negative, you know, and, and there's still great things that came out of the Constitution. I'm not trashing all over the whole thing, but a lot of those things were concessions. Like that was another thing that got brought up in Cywar was that the Bill of Rights was not what I believe the Federalists wanted at all. It was what the opposing side, you know, wanted. And so, and in order to be able to get the Constitution, they essentially had to make a concession. OK, fine, we'll have a Bill of Rights. You know, there there were wealthy interests in the beginning who didn't want us to have, you know, the Bill of Rights, you know, um, and that's so th- those are all the, the, the dark secrets about the Constitution. And in particular, you know, one of the things I tell people to do is to watch the movie The Patriot, because in The Patriot, before there was a Constitution, now mind you, it's it's a fictional film. But one of the things that they definitely got right was that the colonies governed themselves by direct democratic processes, you know, they got together and they had town hall meetings. Everybody spoke, everybody weighed in, and then they, they casted lots to determine what would happen. And that included, you know, ratifying the constitution and included even just like, are we going to support this war effort or that war effort? And if individual citizens didn't agree, they were still allowed to, you know, essentially step aside and not be involved in whatever it is that that group of people collectively decided. Um, That's not how things are now. And they also, People have also not really realized when so they say, well, democracy is evil. This is something I remember you saying actually during your, your, uh, your final speech at the Libertarian Convention was that they were so against democracy. And he's like, well, you guys are all democratically voting to elect which one of us is going to represent you. You know, it's like, you know, so it's either democracy or it's democracy. You know, and, and elected officials are still democratically elected. It, it's not like there isn't still a system in place. So why is it somehow not two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner to pick somebody else to make your decisions for you. Why, how is that supposedly superior? How does that supposedly protect our liberties? It doesn't, you know, um, it gives us an illusion, but we're not any better off picking someone else to make our decisions, especially not if that person is carefully selected from a small handful of very wealthy people. Most of the time. Okay. You know, um, those are the people we get to choose from especially because we have that two-party system. So they pick who we can choose from. And if we try to vote for anybody else, we're quote unquote throwing our vote away, which is why our third parties never get anywhere. You know, and essentially, um, we're very carefully kind of corralled into this, you know, like this trough, so to speak, of column A or column B. And we're not given any choices outside of that. And, And before... The major thing that I think of of really has changed things is that it used to be, in the days before the Internet, people just picked their candidate based on what happened at the debates. And they they completely controlled who got into those debates. So you didn't ever get exposed to other candidates outside of that. I mean, I look back on this now, like, you know, because my son watches Jimmy Dore a lot. He watches rising a lot and i'm like geez you have no idea how good you have it because programs like that did not exist when i was a kid you know you you got whatever fox and nbc they all whatever they wanted to give you that that's what you got you would never even would never even heard of them and that's why i also pointed out so like if bernie had run in 2008 he'd have been standing right there next to you and dennis and ron paul because they'd have gotten rid of you know him as fast as they could you know and they don't have that power anymore The Internet has changed that, and they know that, and they're scared. You know, I I remember watching all those people like Chris Matthews. Oh, God, I hate that guy. Chris Matthews, you know, mouthing off because he was so upset that Bernie had won. You know, and those talking heads just trying to, like, wrap their heads around the possibility that Bernie Sanders won Iowa. Bernie Sanders, you know, killed it, you know, in New Hampshire. You know, like, they they couldn't even, like, to them, that was just, like, you know – the world was, you know, the sky is falling, you know, they, they couldn't handle that at, at all, you know, and I, I definitely think that I, I hope that people are listening to your message that they can look at, you know, read your book and, and look at this concept of direct democracy as another way to empower the people, because a lot of people have essentially been conned into believing that democracy will somehow be bad for them, you know, and as opposed to letting The plutocracy control us. And that's the part about it I think that people forget, is that the plutocracy is in charge.
0: Well, you're you're right. We are ruled by a minority. And what we're suggesting, what I'm suggesting with this legislation, is to be ruled by the majority. It's that simple. And and so ruled by the minority uh, with their power to control Congress Uh, is not a solution and that's the reason why we will never see when they talk about change you know getting uh, let's let's say single payer health care that that's an important important policy because as Bernie points out we have a right to our health but that's not fundamental change fundamental change is going to the Constitution and seeing how the people got screwed out of the process by the found the framers not the founders, because you uh, the, it gets confusing. Uh, it, the, the framers of the Constitution are the ones that screwed the people and gave a lawmaking monopoly to the institution they created, which is the Congress. And right. that monopoly has not served us well. What we need is for the people to be able to participate in the lawmaking process. And the people are capable to do it. We had the technology to do it. We may not have had the technology back in 1787, but we have the technology to do it now. And what will happen when this becomes the law of the land, this will push technology even further to satisfy effectively the desires of the people to govern themselves. You know, when we we hear the statement, uh, government of the people, by the people and for the people, it's never been by the people. It's been by representatives. And that's the flaw in the process that exists today. uh, When you speak so much, particularly, pardon for the
1: interruption, but like they're trying to tell us now we have to vote for Biden, you know, and even if we don't want to, you know, and and it always comes down to this at the end of every election cycle is that, well, you know, it's like the same thing with Hillary last time. It's like, you know, well, you had your run. Yeah, we, we entertained your notion. But now, progressives, you better all line up because you've got to vote for whoever we give
0: you. you know, That's right. Even if he's- That's right. And, and, but, but we can change that. And, right. and I had given up. Uh, you know, First off, if Bernie had succeeded to get the nomination, he would have more problems getting his agenda through a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House. Because keep right. in mind, they are being purchased by the other forces, and so Bernie would be there fighting tooth and toenail for every one of the issues involved and it, and and of course, that's how they would destroy him. they'd make him appear ineffective as a leader because he sure. can't get the stuff through the Democratic Congress now, with what has happened, I'm very distressed over what's happened with this, this explosion of fear uh, pushing uh, Biden. But by the same token, this could be the, uh, the result with a silver lining if, if Bernie would begin to buy into uh, creating a legislature of the people. He would accomplish, as a senator, pushing for the legislature of the people more than he could accomplish as president. And if he understands that, boy, it's Katie bar the door in the support that we will have.
1: Yeah, I would agree with you there. And that, that is another aspect of it that people tend not to look at. People are so fixated on the president, and they don't even know who their congressman is 90% of the time. They have no idea. I ran for Congress in 2008, and the reality is on state-level politics, people pretty much vote their party, and they don't even know who you are. They don't attend, you know, debates for Congress most of the time. They don't watch them online. Um, They don't attend forums. I mean, I, I would probably say when I would go to all these different voter forums as a candidate, there would be a dozen people there. You know, really, really smart voters go to that stuff. But the average person just goes, well, here's the Democrat. Here's the, you know or the dem or the republican and they just vote down the party and if you're a third party candidate unless they're just, you know, essentially voting And, and, and you neil know.
0: that's the problem that, neil that's the problem we're going to have in right. in trying to educate the american public that uh, they deserve to have the right to make laws will they understand that and and so the campaign the what I call the educational campaign We'll have to turn around and get millions of people to buy the book and read it and question it. Uh, and then uh, then we turn around and, and go to have uh, various meetings in every congressional district of the United States. That's the organization that we need to set up to, to just educate the people. Once they're educated and we have an organization – then it'll be easy to conduct the election uh, following the pattern that I outlined in the book. So the key, the key is, is to educate the people, and the only way you can educate them is to have them read the book and question it, discuss it uh, around the country. My hope would be that if if Tulsi Tulsi didn't uh, file for re-election, and I don't know what her plans are but boy I would love to see her become the executive director of this whole uh, Philadelphia 2 national campaign. So now that uh, would definitely also, be good to see. Yeah, because she's, have you had an opportunity to speak to her about this? Pardon me. Have
1: you had an opportunity to speak to her?
0: No, well not about this. Mm. And and mm. I didn't I didn't want to bother her or Bernie with with this. But now that it's come to this uh, then what I'm going to try to do is to get my kids, or if you, if you want to, buy a copy of the book and send it to her. Uh, send it to Bernie. Uh, I want mm-hmm. them to get outside pressure uh, rather than coming from me, using my personal friendship with, with her and with him. Sure.
1: No, I'll definitely pick it up. I loved your last book. I'm sure I'll like this one too. Um, now, one of the things that we didn't talk about today um and obviously this is directly affecting you now but it's the the coronavirus a lot of people are afraid um and they're uncertain and and honestly I mean it's one of the reasons I can even do this show is that everything shut down i'm just stuck in my house essentially um you know and you know i remember talking to skylar in the past you know just kind of fantasizing about what it would have been like if you had been president um you know but so let's say senator mike gravel wins the presidency in 2020, I don't know, maybe a write-in campaign. <laughs> and you're in this situation where we need real leadership because what's going on with this virus is not, has not been real leadership. You know, what is it that you feel like that isn't being done that needs to be done? And and just explain a little bit about your own experience with it being a senior. I mean, God, now you're 90. You're right in that red zone of the kind of people we're going to lose
0: if this thing gets out of out of control. That's right. And that's why I'm staying home <laughs> and, and my wife is under the same threat you know she's seventy four so uh no the uh, i I have no fear uh you know at my age uh you know I've got more time than than I probably deserve, but uh I've got some doctors that know me and know my background and spend a lot of time making sure that i uh, that they can keep me alive uh so the, with respect to a leadership role the the leadership role uh is that the 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 pandemic is such a frightening thing that it incapacitates a lot of people but not the scientists the and and that's the failure that uh that um, uh what's his name uh, our president has done by <laughs> not by not putting the scientists in command in other words when you when you got a war you don't need the military. You need the scientists to, to free up their they, – they know the problem. They live the problem all their careers. And so that's what should have happened. Now, fortunately, we had enough scientists that were honest enough to get media attention and to tell the truth about the stupidity of, and the incompetence that's gone on. And we haven't suffered the bulk of that incompetence because we have not had the testing in the United States. So we don't know how bad the situation is right now. We don't know. And, all, and, the, and the crudest form of what we're doing is lockdown. Take everybody right. out, des- destroy the economy, which is what's happening, uh, because we don't have the tools that would, that would have been necessary, and that is to test. And, and with the testing... Uh, follow the the sources and 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 all of the activities. So we have the great scientists. They're finally speaking speaking up and standing next to Trump, who's trying to get bask in their light. But it won't work. Uh, Trump has revealed himself to be incompetent in this regard, uh, and to try and blame it on China. What the hell's that got to do with it? It's it's a, it's a it's an assault by, by a a virus that can begin anywhere in the world. And to attack people because it began in your country, I mean it's ridiculous. And look at how the Chinese they initially made the mistake of trying to cover up a problem which is so typical not only of tyrants, it's typical of all politicians. If something's going wrong, that let's just and of course Trump Trump issued an order to keep the the processes of analyzing what was going on at the beginning, to keep it secret. I right. mean, the, 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 this whole thing started with. Now, this is after watching China make that mistake and then correct it immediately, and 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 now Trump sees that and does the same thing again. The, so so the the it it's it's frightening. You know, it's frightening to think it could be when you hearken back to 17, 19, 17, 18, uh, my uncle died uh, in the influenza. He never went into the service or went to war, but he died of influenza, and uh, they had only been married for uh, six, seven months when this took place. Uh, And so I've lived in this, my aunt stayed a widow uh, all of her life. Uh, as a result of that. And so it was something that was very much up front for us and our family that the pandemic of uh, 18, uh, 18, 19, uh, did such a havoc on our personal lives. Now, what we're facing now, I think the threat is more serious in the United States than probably Africa and the poor. These are the people who just get wiped out in volume. Uh, and who's the British person? Just recently, made the statement. Uh, a former official made the statement. Well, it's about time we clean out the poor, uh, and this is <laughs> the tool to do it. I mean, this is the, the Republicans and these kind of people are cruel, cruel. The you know Obama, not Obama, but the Trump. You know, he he cut uh, uh, what uh, food stamps out for mm-hmm. people. <laughs> the, I mean. Food stamps. When a person can't make it on their salary and you have to go to food stamps, it says something about the structure of your economic system. And our economic system is an abomination, an abomination. And uh, and it's going to self. You know, it's how it's going to be done. Uh, The fact that they feel they have to give money to people, that's not what they did in the last uh, situation. They gave it to the banks. And the banks didn't even bother to help the people out. They just took advantage. People like Mnuchin, the Secretary of Treasury, he made his wealth off the backs of poor people and foreclosures. And and these are the people in charge. Fortunately, this thing is so severe and everybody's so frightened that they turn to the scientists, who are the only knowledgeable people about what's going on. And so I, from me personally, uh, I, I want to get another couple of three years so that I can push uh, Bernie and o- others to set up a, a, a legislature of the people. That's it for me. Once that's, once that's in place, I can go to my greater reward. And, and I hope I can do this in the next three years.
1: Well, I can tell you, Mike, that, you know, even if for some reason, you know, it doesn't get done, I'm going to keep telling people about it. And, and, uh, You know, I only have so much power, obviously, but my radio show before I went on hiatus had roughly 800,000 listeners worldwide. And I'm hoping to grow that base again, you know, but honestly, please uh, do.
0: Please do. And and with your knowledge of this, you know, I you've got a hell of a memory. (laughs) I'm I'm impressed. (laughs) The but what uh, what it is, is that's the reason why I wrote the book. Until the the kids discovered me and pushed me forward, I had given up. I just wanted to write the book so that hopefully somebody in the future will see this as a solution. Well, that solution is immediate, much more immediate than I thought possible. And that's the reason why uh, if Bernie would have – if he'd have got president – uh, he would have had to go through the experience of not getting his agenda through congress and then he might have alighted on this but now uh we don't have to wait for the election we can start right after the convention doing our plotting and planning and he he would have access to millions of people with his criteria and we would capitalize on that so and then plus at one point the the kids you know had a website uh for me uh which I never used but they had over 40 million hits now right. I don't know what a hit means in people passing through and seeing it but but now you take that uh that body of people and the body of people that Bernie has as a ferocious committed uh group of people to what he represents not not him as the person, but what he represents in a way of solving problems of human governance. That's what we want to capitalize on. And I, I got to tell you, this, this could be a very unique opportunity as a result of the, uh, of the virus uh, and the incompetence and the dishonesty of the Trump administration. Uh, and 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 of course, though we would have a very imperfect vessel in 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 uh, Biden. Uh, the, the, here, let me give you one test of Biden. and I and I know Biden very well. Uh, he is a decent person, as Bernie says. Problem is, is whenever he's been faced with substantial judgment, he failed. He failed with Anita Hill which gave us Clarence Thomas for 50 years in the Supreme Court. He failed with the war, when he was, and, and he was chairman of the Judiciary Committee that was doing the hearings in this regard, and denied Anita the corroboration of two other women that weren't even bothered to be called up. The same thing he did when Biden was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. He facilitated the enactment of the resolution that permitted Bush to go to war. Uh, and so now uh, Biden, the problem, the benefit is that Biden's going to be too old to do a great deal, uh, very much, uh, other than just hold the government together uh, with the, for the Democrats, and they don't want to accomplish a great deal. The, they say they do, but watch what happens. The, the, the When we went to war, keep in mind the Democrats controlled the Senate. When we went to uh when we. Put Clarence Thomas uh, in office. Uh, the Democrats control the House and the Senate. So, uh, right. you know, it, we. So all we all we can do is is Biden will be nothing more than a caretaker, uh, placeholder, uh, and and with as a result of that, that leaves a clear shot of us to go out and create a legislature of the people.
1: I think that's definitely a a great way to look at how to move forward. Um, And, you know, I want to thank you, Mike, again, for coming on and for everything that you've done, you know, and I know that it's been difficult, you know, for you as well, but you've always been so passionate and that you really care. You know, that's something I remember saying to you off the air was that, you know, there are candidates that you can tell when they care. You may not agree with everything they say, but they legitimately care. And then you can tell when they don't, you know, like, Hillary Clinton just came across to me as soulless. You know, like, that's why You're, people, you're so
0: right. You're so right. Plus corrupt. You know, she was taking right. money from Wall Street with a shovel.
1: Right, exactly. And that's one of the reasons why, like, people were, you know, I wasn't Bernie or bust. There were other people that I would have voted for. The problem is, is that I made a, a vow to myself back in 2008 when you were running. I'm never voting for anybody who voted for Iraq. I never I'm never voting for anybody who voted for NAFTA, you know, and I, I might stretch a little bit here or there. But, well, you know, I didn't vote for Hillary or Biden in 2008 over those two issues. I didn't vote for Hillary in 2016 over those issues. And I'm not going to vote for Biden in 2020 over those issues. You know, and well, I think you
0: should re- reexamine that because we do need a placeholder. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we need we need a warm body. And all For your do sake, is I'll consider it. <laughs> uh, all we got to do is take his temperature every morning, make sure he's alive. But uh, but we need a placeholder, and uh, and and Bernie feels that way too. Uh, and so I had some problems with my kids uh, that they just went off the reservation and were misquoted by uh, the New York uh, newspaper. Uh, the globe, or when, I forget which one, and it was an embarrassment because they were making statements that are really not representative of my views. I'm going to vote sure. for Bernie. I'm going uh, to vote for Biden. There's no coups about it. In fact, uh, and, and, and I'll make sure that I'll look at him very closely. as he's healthy? Can he make it to the inaugural? That's my concern. And, right. Well, and I would predict. I would predict that he will pick uh, Amy Klobuchar. Uh, to, uh, 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 to be his vice president. And, uh, and, and she won't be all that great shakes, but then she'll be a talkative uh, placeholder.
1: You know, one of the things, actually, that, that you bring up, actually, that something else that I've been wanting to say to the, to the people on all these forums that I'm part of from these different candidates is that mm-hmm. there are people who still are angry at, at Bernie for 2016 when he inevitably had to go ahead and try to help Hillary which, of course, she seems to have completely forgotten about now. And her um, campaign people are still rabidly anti-Bernie now. And I'm sure that she's pulled some strings to try to give him problems. But the point is, is that Bernie supported Hillary because he didn't want Trump and because it's basically kind of understood that that's what you should do. And then there are Tulsi supporters that I speak to who can't stand Bernie because he did that. And then I usually have to dig up that, you know, eventually Tulsi Gabbard had to vote for Hillary Clinton, too. And they don't believe it, and so then I have to – there's actually a link to an article where Tulsi Gabbard admits that she eventually had to do that. She didn't want to, but that's who they had, you know, given the choice is what Tulsi Yeah, it's Tulsi being said. realistic.
0: You see, to not do that is anarchy, to say that, mm-hmm. you know, we're not going to have – I can't – either my way or the highway is anarchy, and we can't Right, do and they're that.
1: turning on Andrew Yang for doing the same thing. You know, and, yeah, Andrew but- Yang supporters are angry at him.
0: Uh, well, it's wrong, it's wrong mm-hmm. the The reality is we have to have a government and it has to operate. It operates very imperfectly, and under uh, uh, Trump, it was a disaster, but it was a disaster on many times with the Democrats where right. Where did the Democrats get their money? They get it from wall Street <laughs> sure so, and and all of the presidents. Uh, Democrat, Republican, have been puppets of the military-industrial complex. The generals can say what they want to incite war and conflict. I mean, it, it, it's, it's sickening, sickening. And, and all we do is is let them pillage the Treasury to, to create weapons. Here's a figure I saw just uh, yesterday uh, from Cypri in, in uh, Sweden, and that is that, that the amount of weapons – into the global arm bazaar, seventy-three percent are the United States of America. Those are those are all our contractors that sell that, that we subsidize and let them make these weapons and then they sell them into the, into the world. And so, rather than giving, China is trying to raise the economic standard of the world, uh, and we turn around and want to raise the weaponry uh, volume in the world. It's, it's a sick situation. And then, and then when uh, in the debate, uh, Biden didn't even understand what Bernie was trying to talk about. I had sent uh, Bernie a, a paper that was written by uh, Chaz uh, Friedman II, uh, who in my mind would be the ideal Secretary of State, uh, and he wrote a piece on China that was awesome, awesome. And I followed the China stuff very closely, and so I sent that to Bernie uh, and to his uh, his chief of staff because I think it was important for the chief of staff to also read it. And Bernie brought it up that, uh, you know, when you talk about freedom, who's brought about more freedom than anybody else in all of civilization? You have to ask yourself that question. Well, When freedom is not just being able to vote for the leader or the tyrant, the freedom is being able to have money in your pocket to be able to educate your children, to feed your family, to live a nice, decent life in middle class. China has, in the last 30 years, transferred 600 million human beings from poverty to middle class. That is an accomplishment that has never been acknowledged uh, in the United States, and is the greatest accomplishment in human civilization. Now that they don't have the freedom of the vote, well, I got to tell you, the voting is, all, is not all that uh, was cracked up to be, as we see in our own situation. So, well, that was but, yeah. So I w- agree when that. Bernie raised this, uh, Biden couldn't even understand it. Didn't even understand what, what Bernie was talking about.
1: I don't think he possesses the scope, but they also have been because it's so hard to find anything to yell at Bernie about anything that they could twist or turn to try to find out. Know, it all came down about, you know, well, you're, you're speaking positive about a totalitarian evil regime. And it was like, he didn't say anything positive about gulags or, you know, executions. He didn't say any of that. You know, Bernie's trying to be realistic about the fact that some of the things they did rose people out of poverty. And in, the, in regards to the communism and the socialism versus capitalism argument, one of the things that I tend to point out to people is that they, they're, they're concerned about even what we call democratic socialism or social democracy in the Nordic model. They talk about the high taxes and all that. And I said, OK, well, there's something to be said for the fact, however, that the United States is ranked number 27 in upward mobility, as in the likelihood that people who are born poor will become wealthier is we are ranked number 27, whereas the Nordic countries are all in the top five. And huh. it's the then there's, you know, so apparently they're doing something right, you know, yes, because
0: they are. And there's two types of socialism. The, excuse me. There's mm-hmm. Republican socialism and there's democratic socialism. The question is, is who's the, excuse me. The, the mm-hmm. question is who's the beneficiary? With Democratic sure. socialism, the people are, and with Republican socialism, the elites are
1: right, exactly. That's something else I bring up to them all the time they're They're constantly complaining about the what is it the one point five percent of people who are on welfare who are found to commit fraud. It's literally one point five percent that's it, and they're they're so fixated on that the conservatives are essentially I actually read a piece once it was really funny. it was an internet meme that said Fox News. Wealthy people paying other wealthy people to get middle class people to blame poor people, you know, we focus so much on that 1.5% of the people on welfare that they call welfare queens who abuse welfare. And then we don't want to talk about the bank bailout. We don't want to talk about the money that went into the bank bailout that and those people paid themselves bonuses of millions of dollars out of the bank bailout. They came to us and they told us, look, you got to give us this money or the whole economy is going to crash. And, you know, and we did that. And then somehow, you know, oh, well, okay, you fixed it. The economy didn't crash, but you also seem to find enough money to pay all of your executives millions and millions of dollars in bonuses out of taxpayers' money. And then what's worse is at the end of all of that, then they also got to keep all the real estate, kick everybody out of it, and then resell it. You know, I'm like, but nobody wants to talk about that. You know, the amount of money that went into the bank bailout, I mean, I don't have the, the hard numbers, but... You could probably fund the food stamp program for 10 years, you know, on that oh, amount, more that than amount that, of money.
0: The, the, what went into the bailout was over a trillion dollars. Right. That's, and it,
1: nobody looks at it like that. They're they're essentially so fixated on, you know, don't help the poor. You know, they, they might abuse that, you know, to the point that they don't look at that. And it's funny to me that, that they're just so tuned out of it. You know, essentially what it amounts to is that, you know, uh, people are, you know, the, the two main parties are both kind of in the business of trying to figure out how they can best, you know, get as much taxpayer dollars to benefit, you know, their constituents, which is not the constituents of the people who are voting. It's the paying them for their campaigns, obviously. Um, you know, and they don't look at all the money that goes in directions that isn't helping anybody. And it's not even a new phenomenon. Like, um, because of uh, you know my time in the Zeitgeist Movement, I, I checked out a book called War is a Racket, written by General Smedley Butler. And this was oh, pre-World yeah. War II. <laughs> you know,
0: Smedley th- Darling Butler.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, he knew. Uh, I mean, he described situations that well, this is like pre-World War Two, where they had like a bolt or rather it was a wrench that's only used on one bolt that was not even like, I guess, used very often, at all, like there was like six different things that any that we ever used this one bolt for, and he, he has the numbers in the book. You can actually find it for free online on PDF because it's so old. Oh no, I've it's read. Called I've Wars read, of Racket.
0: Uh, spent, I read Bob Butler a long time ago. Right, and in this
1: book, he detailed that they ordered like I don't know a million of these wrenches, and, and nobody needs them. But you know, but somebody made money doing that. You know, and at the end of his you know point was to try to run for congress and i think he was going to eventually try to run for president was to bring attention to this fact that all the money all the wars are are fixated on money and if there's no money to be made then the war won't happen you know something i remember when we were having that in darfur there was this horrible genocide going on nobody was talking about sending any military over there but when iraq is rolling around it's time for us to send the military because he gassed the kurds like 10 years ago i mean it's been even longer since then but you know, that was actually something Ron Paul pointed out. He's like, so we're going over to Iraq because you're concerned that he gassed his own people 10 years ago? You know, he's like, why didn't you care about it back then? You know, it probably has something to do with the petrodollar and all the money to be made with oil. I mean, he didn't elaborate that far, but, you know, him arguing with Hannity was always crazy. I just, you know, Hannity was one of the pundits that just made me want to punch him in the face. And it, it was stuff like that, that, you know, you know, and I remember Stephanopoulos, oh, that's another one. You know, the fact that he even still has a job, I remember listening to him talk to you and he was so condescending and so snotty. I was like, oh, how does this guy get employed? I can't stand him. Um, you know, and I guess, you know, on the plus side of it, I, you know, um, that Chris Matthews was pretty nasty to you back in 2008, too, if I remember. And, you yes. know, and now he's finally out of a job. Because he just he screwed up too much, you know. And I'm actually kind of happy for that. The, the stuff he was saying about Bernie was so over the top. And finally, even Fox News had had enough of him, uh, or it wasn't Fox. I'm sorry. It was I think it's CNBC, yeah, C- C-
0: M- MSNBC.
1: Right. Yeah. And he was, you know. I mean, although the the sexual um, harassment allegations are, you know, the reason that they gave, it wouldn't surprise me if just the fact that he had committed so many faux pas. At that point that the network was already upset with him might have been what emboldened those women to finally be willing to step forward and talk about it, Um, you know, because a lot of the ones who want to report it, they're always concerned if this guy's high profile, you know, is this going to hurt my career, you know, so then he was finally on the ropes when he made those stupid comments like comparing, you know, Bernie's people to brown shirts and then comparing his. His win in, I think it was in Iowa, or no, it, was, it wasn't in Iowa, it was in Nevada, because it was so one-sided. He compared it to the Nazis storming France. You know, he was already in trouble at that point. You know, that was actually another one of your books that I remember reading was um, The Kingmakers. Um, oh, and yes, yes. That was a good book, um, just discussing how much power the media has over who we elect as president. Um, and it, people don't realize just, just how much control they have. I mean, it's like so... Bernie sticks it to Biden in the last debate and CNN is there quickly to do, you know, damage control and try to make, Oh, did you see how great Biden did in that, you know, in that debate, you know, he clearly won this debate, you know, CNBC is probably even worse. Um, you know, and they, they try to manipulate the way people think and they're doing a pretty decent job of it still. But again, nowhere near as powerful as they were when you had to deal with them in 2008 and certainly not as powerful. I mean, I can't even imagine running for, president before the internet like in the 70s or something i mean like i mean well i mean think back to when you were a senator you know can you imagine you know trying to run for president then as opposed to when the internet was around
0: yep yeah oh well look at uh how long have we been on at this point
1: it's yeah it's it's getting it's getting to be about that time mike i understand so thank you very much for being on
0: Well, um, thank you. you. Uh, First off, I want to stay in touch with you. So, uh, would would you make a point of contacting me every so often? Absolutely. Um, Thank you for being on. I'll definitely do that. You have a wealth of knowledge. You have a wealth of knowledge and the ability to express your knowledge in a very articulate fashion. I really am am impressed.
1: Well, thank you, Mike. (laughs) I had a good teacher. (laughs) Uh, it wasn't only you, but you were definitely a huge influence on the way that I communicate. So, um, and the courage about it, you know, so thanks again, Mike, and thanks for being on. And, you know, we're definitely on way longer than we thought we would be. I appreciate you coming on again. And, you know, I will, I will definitely keep in touch. You have my cell phone number now, and I'll probably reach out to you again. Also just to, you know, see how things went with this broadcast for you and, you know, hopefully have you on again in the near future.
0: Very good, very good. and I'd be delighted.
1: Okay. So, well, thanks a lot, Mike. Uh,
0: um, did, you ha- keep, did you have? you have a website your, or? Keep your distance, uh, you know, from other people, and don't get <laughs> yeah. in, uh, infected. Okay. <laughs> I'm
1: going to avoid that. Can Can you give us the name of your book one more time?
0: It, the name of the book is the The Failure of Representative Government, and a the Solution, a Legislature of the People. The book is a manual to be able to create and operate a legislature of the people. And the book is only a little over 100 pages.
1: You okay, can read excellent. it in one
0: setting. So,
1: and um, obviously, I would also recommend if you haven't read The Kingmakers, um, The Kingmakers was an excellent book about the media's control over elections and other matters, um, also by Mike Gravel. Uh, so thanks again, Mike, for coming on. Um, I'm going to say goodnight to you. You know, Give my affection to your wife if she has any idea or remembers who I am. <laughs> and um, thanks again.
0: And let's stay in touch, okay? I will. Thanks again, Mike. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yep.
1: So that was Senator Mike Gravel. Uh, thank you all for tuning in to V Radio again. Um, once again, if you would like to support the show, um, you can do so. By supporting me on Patreon, I actually don't use PayPal anymore. Um, and if I do get sufficient money through Patreon, I will probably upgrade my account to be able to do longer shows and, and things like that. It is my intention to continue to do so whether i don't whether I get support on Patreon or not. Um, things going forward, I have no idea financially what's going to happen to me in this situation, particularly with the, the way that restaurants work, and that's what I do. Um, the restaurants are being closed down by necessity, essentially. Um, and fortunately enough, the part of the, the restaurant business that I do, um, hasn't been completely taken out of things because basically I handle customer service and talking to people and, you know, making sure their orders are right. Um, but it's just a matter of time essentially before the layoffs come and they've already shortened my hours a bit. Um, so then, you know, the plus side of that is that I have more time again to get back into activism. And um, the financial aspect of it is actually not my major motivation, but it did occur to me that, you know, in the in, in the end result, especially if I'm just locked up in my house, um, I could do something to be able to not only try to help people and, you know, spread the word of the truth of what's really going on in society, um, but also hopefully just be able to maintain a meager existence while I'm at it. <laughs> so, um, Thanks again for tuning into V radio. Unfortunately, I do not have a website anymore. Um, if you are a web, um, designer who might be interested in helping the show by bringing up V Again, I would appreciate it. My previous, uh, web designer does not do that anymore. At least not for me. Um, <laughs> I guess, uh, he decided he's a Stefan Molyneux guy now. Um, and, uh, I'd like to be able to get my, um, uh, my original web hosting back if you if you're interested in helping me with that let me know um and i'm going to be trying to come on every day i can't always promise that i'm going to have high profile uh guests uh i can't always promise that uh i'll be talking about you know the things that you're accustomed to me talking about in the past um i am still an advocate for the venus project and the zeitgeist movement um what i have kind of found is that those organizations have kind of gone into bunker mode um i don't talk to peter anymore the last time i tried to talk to roxanne she seemed to be kind of standoffish um so i'm not going to get into any of that because when um things happened between those two organizations i tried to stay out of it as best as possible um but regardless, you know, I do plan on still bringing up the resource-based economy model. And, you know, for those of you who tuned in to listen to Standard Politics, investigate the Venus Project, because I think that we are now beyond um, when all of this political stuff is dealt with, you know, whether it's a lean towards democratic socialism, which I do think is a good step forward, we're eventually going to get to a point where we have to evaluate how we use the world's resources. And you know, kind of like Mike and both Mike Ravel and Bernie Sanders have pointed out, there comes a point where scientists need to be the authority. And that's essentially what Jacques Fresco was trying to say. We need to have scientists making these kinds of decisions, not over every aspect of our life, but when we have representative government, you have this situation where people who might've been, I mean, for example, Ron Paul used to be an obstetrician. So he was a baby doctor or a delivery baby doctor. You know what what in his you know education was in any way valuable to him being a statesman? Pretty much nothing. And the majority of our elected body is also all people who don't necessarily have any qualifications for what it is that they're doing. So um, consider, you know, investigate the Venus Project. How we could reinvent society uh, to make it so that science becomes essentially the authority, um, and not over our personal lives, but over how we build society. Um, how we move forward as a species, even to use science and ration and, you know, and rational reason to come to decisions rather than political opinion. So um, there are several films that you could watch about that, um, and I hope that you will have an opportunity to do so. Um, and I'm going to look into I've talked to Douglas Mallette a little bit. He was uh, an engineer uh, who helped work on the space shuttle. He's been on my show many times in the past. Um, I'm also reaching out to Aaron Hawkins, Storm Clouds Gathering. Um, I know that he's been having some problems because the island that he lived on uh, was hit by a hurricane. Um, I'm hoping to bring him on also to talk. He's always had, you know, uh, great insights. And if there are any guests that you would like me to try to get, I'm going to do my best. Um, I thought I had Jordan Peterson lined up at one point and then they just stopped talking to me. I'm almost to the point now where, because there were still like kind of a pack of trolls who would follow me around and everything that I did. And, um, you know, who are likely if I come out and say who I'm going to be contacting to be a guest, they would probably just go out of their way to contact that person and try to tell them not to come on. So I'm just not going to do that anymore. But if you have somebody that you would like me to bring on, you know, by all means do so. Um, and so I'm going to leave you guys with the, thing that I basically there was a, a statement that I made online was one of the things that essentially brought out my interest in deciding to come back to being a commentator again and it was because of the fact I, I had linked this link that some uh, to an article that was talking about Bernie Sanders and how ironically you know the things that he proposed would have made us better prepare, you know prepared Uh, to deal with the coronavirus. And I have a lot of conservative friends and I have tried to go out of my way to be civil with them because one of the things that I feel is missing from our political discourse right now is that we can't talk to each other. Um, There are extreme elements on both the left and the right. And we're to a point where there are elements of the left that I don't agree with, who want to deplatform people, you know, if there's a speaker they don't like then they pull a fire alarm to prevent other people from hearing them, you know, and, and on that right, there's always been that problem. But now both sides are doing it. And that's not what I'm about. Um, you know, if you don't like what somebody's saying, then you need to rationally figure out a way to deal with it. You know, you need to rationally find out how you can talk to them, you know, and, and change their minds or even just bring them to a point where they at least understand where you're coming from. You know, and that's something that both sides of the aisle are losing. And in the meantime, we're not considering that the people behind the curtain, the ones who are really in charge, the plutocrats that I mentioned earlier, they don't care about the poor, whether they've got a Republican hat on, you know, MAGA hat on, or if they've got a Bernie Sanders shirt. They don't care about you. None of them. You know, none of those people care about you. They don't care about poor Republicans. They don't care about poor Democrats. And I have always been, you know, aside from my time period with the Libertarian Party, I have always been an independent. And the reason why, you know, comes back to what I was saying earlier about what George Washington said. Our political parties are not, were never essentially intended to have the power that they have. You know, there was never this intention. To have this, you know, huge body that determines which kind of people were allowed to vote for. But that's what's happened. It was never intended, but that's what's happened. And that's why I've been lucky that I live in Michigan, because I can vote in either primary, or both if I want to, which is what allowed me to vote for Ron Paul in 2008. And it's what allowed me to vote for, um, it's what allowed me to vote for Bernie, you know, on two different times 2016 and 2020. Um, And I would not have had that ability if I had not, um, you know, essentially maintained, you know, where I was at as an independent, although there is an open primary, there's, there's pluses and minuses to that too. There are people who've just been outright told me that, you know, um, that they voted in the primary for one candidate or the other, hoping to spoil the election. But anyway, so I finally found the um, points that I wanted to make. So, I'm going to read this, and this will be the conclusion of my show for tonight, and I will plan another one for tomorrow night. I challenged conservative friends of mine who laughed when I shared this link to an article about how Bernie's policies could have helped us with the virus issue. I have X'd out names of people I call out specifically, so feel free to share. You know what? I was just going to let people laughing about this go, but I have decided instead that I want to weigh in. I have a lot of conservative friends, and I pledge to be civil to them, and I will. We have to be civil to move things forward, but this is reality, period. It's time to defend your position, and I give you my oath that we will remain friends when this conversation is concluded. This virus spreads in the air. It is very communicable. People who are uninsured or underinsured do not go to the hospital or even to the urgent care when they have coughs or sniffles, and usually not even if they have a fever, and they sure as hell don't take time off. Bernie made this point, and I challenge you to explain how this is incorrect. People who can't afford to go to the doctor simply don't. And that creates a situation where they spread a virus, whether they want to or not. And to be clear, they don't do this because they can't. I know it's difficult, sometimes particularly for people in the middle class who have never been poor to grasp this, but they can't. The money is not there. They can't even afford to take a single day off work. They can't afford to go to the doctor. Millions of people are in this situation. I'm sure the knee knee jerk reaction will be to blame poor people for being poor, obviously this is the reason so many countries have reasoned that it improves everyone's lives when certain public services are guaranteed. X, this is one of my friends, had a good moment commenting on one of my other threads about canceled schools. And he said that he felt bad for the poor parents who won't have any childcare. Like, damn, well, I guess it's a good thing that Bernie suggested universal childcare, huh? Why do we need it? Schools are canceled. A lot of poor parents me included, when my kids were younger, were utterly dependent on childcare from the other sources if I wanted to work. It is insanely expensive. So, universal childcare? My next segue would be into the laughable, quote-unquote, laughable ideas of Andrew Yang, the former presidential candidate who researched into UBI or universal basic income, $1,000 a month to every citizen, as the next step in this thing is eventually that can't, in quotes I mentioned earlier, is going to stop or extremely limit what people can do to work. They are either going to get sick, their parents are going to get sick, their immune-compromised babies and children will get sick. What are those people to do? Where does that head next? Can't fix their cars, can't pay rent and mortgage, can't work. Conservatives at their core, when you strip down to the darkest levels of their views, believe that the strong will survive. Every man for themselves. Pull your own weight. I got mine, so F you. Every now and then they let it slip. Well, you should not have had kids then. So if we move forward to the next logical conclusion that history has shown us, and we stay in the mindset of every man for himself, things start to get really bad. But then it becomes about numbers. And there are a lot more poor people than there are middle class and upper middle class people. Ask the nobles in the French Revolution who said, let them eat cake in response to massive poverty, how that worked out for them. This is also the kind of situation that extremist groups like the Bolsheviks and pre-Soviet Russia or the Nazis in pre-World War II Germany used to grow their movements. Put a whole lot of poor people in desperation mode. Spit in their faces. Tell them that they should not have had kids when their kids get sick. Tell them to find better jobs in an economy where nobody can work. See how that works out. I know a lot of you are armed, but you won't have enough bullets for everyone who eventually shows up to take what is yours because their children's lives depend on it. And to be clear, I do not want this to happen. But situations like this are not good situations for capitalism. We are told that the Republicans like Trump do care for us and that their trickle-down thinking will help us. But so far, who got the first economic aid in the crisis? The effing oil companies. Bailouts are on their way to protect the rich right out of the gate. And they shoot down any proposals to help the poor in this situation starting to change. Anyway, socialism for the rich, as Bernie has pointed out more than once. Let's send a few billion dollars into Wall Street and help out the oil companies who might be in trouble. Are you effing kidding me? But no money for families in a situation where they can't work, even if they want to. So X, different friend of mine, you're one of my friends who laughed at this post I shared. Will you explain to me how the capital solution is going to solve this problem? How is Big Pharma going to find a way to increase their profits exponentially in the face of this crisis? Because that is literally all they care about, and you know it. Explain to me how a healthcare system that leaves millions uninsured is going to be the better solution for handling this crisis. Accountability also needs to be put where it belongs. The virus itself will not kill many of us. But if this thing gets really bad, the riots, the fights, etc. over the goods that we can't get to the United States will cause more deaths. And who is to blame for that? Which class of people outsourced the jobs and closed all the plants so that they could pay someone in China or Mexico 50 cents an hour instead of paying a fair wage to people in the United States? Which class of people did this so that they could buy another yacht or mansion or sports car? I'll give you a hint. Most of them are Republicans. Not all, but most. And in the name of a fourth vacation home in the Bahamas, that class has made our country country utterly dependent on foreign countries many of whom do not care for us for critical and basic things that we need. They were wealthy, even paying American style wages, but they, for some reason needed to be even wealthier. So they created this situation and what sort of workers do they want? They move the jobs to places where the working class is so desperate that they won't dare strike. They won't dare complain about inhumane or literally unsafe work conditions. They won't dare ask for higher wages They will voluntarily live in improvised shacks that look like something our homeless would construct. They will voluntarily go without health care that is not provided them by anything outside of the Red Cross or whatever charitable organization shows up at their village to try to help whoever they can. When they closed the largest refrigerator plant in the United States, located in Greenville, Michigan, the unions met with them, offered pay cuts, offered whatever they could to prevent the plant from closing. The owners looked at them and said, you take $1. fifty an hour? The workers, of course, said they couldn't do that, to which the owners replied, of course not. It was a rhetorical question, but that is why we are closing the plant. And that horse spit is why we are utterly dependent on other countries to produce our goods, because the wealthy are utterly addicted to paying starvation wages and workers who are living about the same quality of life as plantation slaves. Communism failed, but Bernie is not suggesting communism. He's suggesting a capitalist system wherein some people can and will still be wealthier than others, but they recognize their responsibility to the society that sustains them to take care of the rest of the people in their country. There are still wealthy people in democratic socialist countries, and yes, they do get taxed. They might have one less mansion. Damn, that sucks. But hey, at least there's no food riots. At least they can walk down the street and see that everyone else in their community is at the very least also able to move forward in their lives. That their economic system promotes upward mobility for everyone in their country instead of all the new wealth only going to the top 1%. I keep bringing up upward mobility. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, the United States is ranked number 27 in upward mobility, but all these Nordic countries are ranked in the top five. That's about all I got time for tonight. Thanks again for tuning in to V Radio. I hope you'll join me next time.